I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Shilpa Raj, was one of five girls featured in the four-part Netflix documentary, Daughters of Destiny, about growing up from age four in a residential school called Shanti Bhavan in Tamil Nadu, India, near Bangalore. Founded by and originally funded by Indian-American businessman and philanthropist Abraham George, the school's mission is to help children and their families break out of the underclass. Shilpa was one of the first students at the school, which opened in 1997, the new home away from home for 300 children from rural villages or urban slums, from families earning less than $2 per day, nearly all from the group or caste called Dalit or Untouchable. In 2017, the same year as the release of Daughters of Destiny, Shilpa published a memoir, The Elephant Chaser's Daughter. She has gone on to earn a master's degree in psychology and is currently enrolled in a psychology doctoral program at Hofstra University on Long Island, New York. So Shilpa, welcome to Delving In. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you for having me on your show. First of all, I want to congratulate you for the journey you've traveled so far, uh, especially your courage and willingness to share your story in the film and your book and now in this interview. And I understand that you've also given talks to students at high school and college level, and it's maybe even younger. And it's it's really an, an impressive feat. I'm, it's one of the things I'm most impressed in life is when someone is able to not only grapple with their suffering, but turn it into something that helps other people. And it's clearly that's, that's become your, your life mission. My, my greatest admiration for that. And I also wanted to mention that the the documentary, Daughters of Destiny, is a really excellent, excellent documentary. It's really one of the most moving and best produced documentaries I've ever seen. It's four parts, each one an hour. It's moving, poignant, honest, nuanced. The filmmaker, Vanessa Roth, is an Academy Award-winning filmmaker, not for this, but for, I think, for a previous film. One of the things that's most impressive about the film is how she managed to capture genuine moments. I mean, it's sort of almost hard to believe that people would act so naturally in front of a camera. I mean, there were just really personal, personal moments in families or between teachers and students or between Abraham George and and, uh, his staff. I mean, it was really amazing. You really feel like you're there. That really speaks to her skill as a filmmaker and a storyteller. And it took over seven years for the documentation. And by that time, all of us had grown very close to Vanessa and her crew. And we had gotten accustomed to having her following us around. And if you ever meet her, you'll notice that she's very unassuming and just gels in with the environment and doesn't make herself stand out to the point that where you'd feel discomforted by her presence. She became a part of our story and we felt comfortable opening up to her in the way that we did. And I have to say that I thought of the five stories, all of which were quite moving. I thought yours was the most most moving and poignant of all. I may be a little prejudiced there because I'm interviewing you, but... <laughs> yeah, I think you're biased. <laughs> So be, be, before we you know delve into the to your book and to your story, 
tell us about some of the background of where you came from and and the contrast in terms of what the school was going to help you to, um, for lack of a better word, escape. But the the village you came from from Tatagupe. Yes, what was life like in that in that village? It was an extremely poor village. People made their living by brewing illicit liquor, and there was a lot of crime and gangs in in the village and people like my father grew into the family trade it was passed down from generation to generation and the only thing they knew was uh, how to make a living barely make a living uh, through the street and life was one of constant hardship poverty trying to escape getting caught by the police because this is an illicit trade and alcoholism the men who made the liquor very often fell prey to it and women were controlled were oppressed by the patriarchal system and so for a girl born into a village like this there was really no hope of her ever finding a voice of her or being able to move away from the village and search of the power of education so your fate was already sealed no upward uh, mobility as they say in the, in, the, in the united states so just to amplify what you're saying about the poverty f- from your book i gathered that the the living conditions were very primitive by certainly by american or western standards the walls are sealed with cow dung i imagine there was a dirt floor there was not, not even, was there not a bathroom? There was not even an outhouse until later in your life that uh, people did their needs just in the bushes. You know, I mean, this is really something I think that would be hard for an American, even a impoverished American to fathom. It's really a whole different standard uh, of living. It's the way of life. It's the way of life in rural villages in India where you have you barely have means to get by and you live in the simplest of ways and then the title of your book the elephant chaser's daughter that's that's not a profession americans are familiar with yes <laughs> most indians too i often get asked what does the title mean so my village is located in a forested area in southern karnataka and men like my father who are recruited by the forest department uh, men like them go out at night to chase away the, the wild elephants that encroach upon the sugarcane plantations and often on uh, enter the villages uh, so they are a nuisance and men like my dad are trying to my father are trying to keep the villagers safe and how do you chase an elephant? They would use local fireworks to just scare them because elephants are scared of the loud sounds. Sometimes you would also use tranquilizers to catch the elephants and uh, they brought to the local zoo. So one last question before we sort of go back to the, the beginning of your story, and that's you decided after graduating Shantibhavan, in, in, which means a haven of peace that you decided to stay another year after graduating to write your memoir. And I, I'm very impressed that you 
did that. And I'm also very impressed with Abraham George and the administration for allowing that because you know, every student, I'm sure, uh, takes up a bed and uh, takes up uh, some resources. So they must have really believed in in your project and wanted to support it. Yes, <laughs> that is uh, the power of this community and the beauty of Shanti Bhavan, where the teachers and the caretakers, and you have Dr. George and Ajit and the administrative team, they really invest in each one's dream. And I myself, I didn't know that I could be capable of writing a book and getting it published. They have been this phenomenal support system behind me and helping me move forward. And it's impressive that you wrote it in a year. Actually, no. I took seven years. Oh, okay. That That's, that's more believable. <laughs> <laughs> I took seven years. I was in and out of college as well. And it really takes time to process what had happened to you and how you'd come to be where you were. Absolutely. Of course it does. So going all the way back to when you entered the school at four years old, what do you remember about the selection process to be accepted, both both in general and also for you personally? I have distinct memories, uh, as I have shared in my book. I do remember the day the Jeep came into my village. I remember the parts of the tests that were done. I remember having to identify the coins currency that was placed in front of me and I remember my drive to the school because I had never traveled in a car before and it was a pretty long drive and just it was so exciting for a four-year-old who'd only been used to village life to be in a vehicle going into cities looking at tall buildings and colorfully painted buildings it was quite an adventure and I remember reaching the school, arriving there and my parents being taken into one of the dorms to show the staff wanted our parents to see what the dorm looks like. And I remember looking up at this high ceiling and staring at the rows of bed. It really resembled a hospital. Well, and the fact is that it had beds, right? I mean, back home, there were no beds. It was just mats, I imagine. Yeah, all of us slept on the floor. No bed was could be a comfort for a four-year-old who was suddenly who who was away from her mom. The first night, it was I was just shocked. I couldn't understand why my parents weren't by my side. The bed was scary to get on and sleep on because of the elevation and the fear of falling down because this wasn't something I was used to. Yeah, I, I imagine that you were inconsolable, that it was uh, s such a terrifying, terrifying for a four-year-old, I think, and to not really understand what the whole thing was about, even though I'm sure you were a bright four-year-old. And and the reason I say that, that you were, were a bright four-year-old, is I imagine that the people who came to the village were school psychologists, and they were doing a kind of a mini psychological evaluation to looking for children who had especially good verbal skills. I think that's one thing they probably were looking for. And they weren't just choosing children at random, that's for sure. 
they did have this uh, a screening process and a well-planned procedure for how children would be recruited. So in your book, you talk a lot or write a lot about your parents not being on the same page. I mean, you don't use that expression, but they weren't on the same page about this whole idea of you going. As you describe it, your father was the, you might say, a visionary in terms of seeing what you could achieve for yourself and for the family to escape poverty. And your mother, not so much. We still talk about this. My mother still sometimes brings up the pain. She does talk about how hard it was for her to have her first child, her four-year-old, taken from her. And she was forced to give me up because it wasn't like my dad wanted her consent or he wasn't even looking for it. He made the decisions and everyone just had to abide by it. So for me now, looking back and putting myself in my mother's shoes, I I don't know if I would be able to do what she eventually was forced to do. I don't know if I would have. I just can't imagine the pain and the trauma that she must have gone through to have her child take. My father did have me taken from her and put into the school. And I've had my, now looking back, I have my own doubts about why my father sent me. While he had a vision, I feel, uh, I don't know if there was some selfishness in it as well. He probably saw me as the one, the golden goose, the one who was going to bring the whole family out of poverty. And now, with the way he's behaved with me in the recent past, I recognize that he just sees me as the money-making machine. And I there's a lot of resentment in, in that. Yeah, of course, as with... Uh complicated uh, human decisions, it it could be mixed motives that don't even stay the same from year to year. So there may have been moments when he identified with you and and your future success, and other times when he was thinking of it more selfishly. So it's it's complicated. But I can understand what you're saying. And and I think the school uh, required both of them to agree, but um, I, I don't think your mother really saw her as having herself as having a voice it was so ingrained that the, that the husband makes the decisions in that culture yes you passively agree you passively go along exactly so when you first arrived uh, how did the other children and the staff seem to you i mean i mean once you got over the initial shock being as resilient as we were as kids we quickly took to the ways of the school and every day was an adventure because we were being exposed to things we had never seen before or done before like playing in a park or visiting a zoo or eating five meals a day and having a uh, chairs to sit on and having toys so and we were introduced to food like spaghetti and Coco, things we had never experienced before. So each day was something, there was something for us to look forward to. 
And one thing I think that ought to be clarified is that the idea of taking children from age four, I mean, that sounds very extreme, but I think Dr. George had a, a vision that uh, the children needed to learn a, not just educational skills, but a whole new culture and value system. And that required having the children there from a very early age. Yes, he was really using the early intervention method. He had worked with psychologists and teachers and he formulated the school program to really tap into treating trauma early on, helping children adapt to a new way of life. The right young age of three and a half or four when when they they had the potential to learn new ways and 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 let go of old habits and people were very skeptical i think that he could succeed because there was so much prejudice to, uh, against the uh, children of a, of a low caste and uh, thinking that they were inherently incapable and he says no 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 I, I will prove you wrong and he certainly has so tell me about when you first met dr george and that must have been a very important moment I have um, strong, mem very distinct memories of him as a child. He, when, uh, as a kid, all of us, my classmates and I, we just saw him as Santa Claus. We because he would visit the school periodically, and he lived at the school for three months at a time, and then went back to the U.S. And every time he'd come back, he'd bring lollipops with him. So I remember us associating him with treats and he would even prepare special dinners for us or bring uh, videos uh, we watched the musical cats with him so he would bring all of these surprises and make it really exciting for us on campus we would do some fun activity or the other so we really saw him as this man with the bag of surprises and treats. And he also talked to the children in large groups as well as individually, yes? We'd have our Thursday night talks where the older grades would gather up and he would, every week the topics would range from, it could be about school-related issues like our grades, or next week could be about, about the Iraq war and terrorism or another week it would be about children fighting off the pressure to marry early every week there was something new to talk about and there were endless issues at hand that needed to be solved and he was the parental figure trying to fix things for, for, for all of us and trying to guide us in problem solving so he was in a way the, the father of hundreds of kids <laughs> Yes, I really think so. And that's a huge responsibility to take on. And I really admire him for everything that he's done. And we children, as children living at the school, the school staff really grew into our second family. He wasn't the only male at the school. There also were male teachers. Right. I, I don't know if, if they were male teachers at the lower grades, but certainly at the upper grades. Not as many. We had a larger number. 
of female staff. And then in the residence halls, there were uh, women who were called aunties. From what I understand, that's common in Indian culture that uh, close any woman who has a caring role toward a child is called auntie. And you talk a lot about Auntie Shalini, I think it's a pseudonym, who was your residence auntie. She was the head, she was the matron. So everybody reported to her. And from your book, it sounds it sounds like you were very close, felt very close to her very quickly. She was a kind of second mother for you. She was, but I also have a, a complex relationship there, as I've touched upon, because there was abuse in terms of um, her being emotionally harsh, emotionally abusive, and. It really uh, speaks to the ways in uh, the harsh ways of ch- child rearing practices in India because the common conception was that you have to beat a kid to shape them to be a better person. You have to deprive them of food or humiliate them in order to get them to change or isolate them. She wasn't alone in this in terms, in, by that I mean that at home, back home, this was how my siblings were treated. Common to the culture. Both at home and at school. Yes, to the culture. It's common to the culture. Yeah, so I get the impression that it was beyond what um, Dr. George would approve of uh, in terms of child rearing. Yes, definitely. He didn't know. He didn't know. So years later. And when he did, he would uh, take strict action. Very often, he tried to warn the uh, staff member, try to get them to change their ways. And if they didn't, he would fire them. But she was there for many years, wasn't she? Yes. He was also working with staff members who had never been part of a project like this before. And they were being shaped as well. They were being asked to change their ways and adapt to a new culture of raising children. And that takes time. Now, uh, Dr. George's son, Ajit, uh, you know, came aboard, uh, I guess, around the time of the financial crisis, which would have been, I guess, your last three, four years there, something like that. Um, and in the film, and I was, this is one another thing that really impressed me about the documentary is that it was a very honest appraisal of of the project, both its its beauty and also some of its uh, shortcomings, and I guess still being a work in progress. But he himself, and this is really amazing, and I think it speaks well of Dr. George that his son could be so open in public about his father, that. Uh, he clearly greatly admires and respects his father, but he also saw him as, as at times harsh with his discipline philosophy. And that Ajit thought that as uh, someone of the younger generation who grew up in the United States, because his, uh, his son Ajit grew up in New Jersey, speaks with an American accent. I think his philosophy was to, without losing any firmness, to not use punitive methods, but to much more to you know talk with with children or adolescents about what they were doing and why it was necessary to change, much more persuasion rather than coercion. 
I don't know if you saw Dr. George that way or because it would be very easy, I think, to idealize him so much that you see him as almost perfect. No, I don't. I recognize flaws in myself as well as in others. And he was harsh at times. And um, some, there were moments when I felt he didn't understand the depth of the challenges that we students were grappling with because by stemming from the very fact that we lived in two worlds emotionally and psychologically and sometimes uh, I felt he didn't see that our behavior at school was being also shaped by the experiences back home and now that he spends a lot of time at the school literally uh, he runs it and he spends a lot more time compared to what it was like when i was a child i've seen him grow in in terms of uh, his closeness with the children in terms of his understanding of what they're truly going through and it's it's been amazing to see he's always been extremely empathetic and it's been amazing to see how this has enhanced his relationship with the students. It, it is amazing, and especially considering that he does not have a psychology background. He was a businessman, uh, I think a Fortune 500 company, very successful. Uh, grew up in India, but then uh, lived in the United States where he made his, his fortune and used an entire fortune to uh, toward the school, probably to to the chagrin somewhat of his uh, of his wife who you know had to see him go off to india um, for months at a at a time so it's really it's he's really quite a visionary and and what you mentioned earlier about uh, the two worlds you know home and school he, he had a, a an understanding that the children needed to be able to adjust to both worlds to to a large extent they need to be able to be at least somewhat comfortable going back and forth and by back and forth, I mean that uh, the children were home, home for summer vacation and winter vacation for some weeks at a time. And it, it just is amazing re-entering that world must have been such a, such a shock. I mean, talk about culture shock. It's the same country, probably not that far. I mean, somewhat far distance wise, but still the same country, but it's completely different worlds. In terms of value systems, in terms of how people treat each other, uh, in terms of, of course, the level of poverty versus comfort. It was a shock. It, I felt like a guest in my own home. I felt like an outsider. And I'm sure it was challenging for my siblings and the adults in the family to adjust to me as well, because I, I felt out of place. I had lost my fluency with our native language, so at times it was really hard to even communicate my feelings and thoughts because I didn't have the words for it. And I also had begun to subscribe to the empowering ways of the school. I did not agree. I how I was in conflict with the way women were subjugated to the patriarchal system and sometimes I'd challenge it. So I felt like a misfit and my family probably felt 
they were being looked down upon by me or judged by me it was it was challenging for both sides yeah it sounds like there's a, a lot of um reason to feel a lot of pain and and guilt in the reentry process and in the leaving process yes there was a lot of pain in leaving when i was younger when i it was very hard to leave i'd be homesick most of my classmates we'd be homesick for quite a while after returning to school we'd cry we'd really cry ourselves to sleep at night but we we had a loving support system at school we had the teachers wouldn't dive right into academics in the first few weeks we'd be given the time to process our experiences we have art classes and dance classes and we'd sit together as a group and each one would share about the things they did at home and that was also the time when the teachers and the staff found out about whether any child had been abused and they they would call the family over and talk to them so it was an intensive process of adjusting and readjusting Well, it sounds like the school is very sensitive to needs uh, in addition to academic ones. I mean, in in the United States, this there's been there's been a terrible push, you know, to uh, kindergarten used to be a half day and and mostly about socialization, and now kindergarten is a full day, and it's a lot of it is academic, uh, as if I, I, we're supposed to be the the, the advanced country, but uh, there's really lack of understanding that children need to learn. A, a value system in being in part of a large group and and uh, being in a school and learning how to cooperate and it sounds like at at uh, Shantibhav and there was an understanding of that even though the ultimate goal was to have a high level of academic achievement it has to be built on a, a social and emotional fa- foundation in the earlier years and that was that really goes into why we are taken in at such a young age because we are being given those emotional and social skills and having our trauma addressed early on so that we can overcome it and function in in your book you really depict very vividly i mean i could almost feel it in in my in myself that uh the struggle uh, that you had to go through in uh adjusting to that not not just to their value system but really more to having left your family behind i mean not 100% because you still visited but for the you know most of the year you were at the school and i'm sure you were well aware on some level of the terrible conflict between your parents uh and not just about you from the book it sounds like you kind of channeled that into a kind of rebellion at school and and with difficult behavior and it's really amazing how honest and open you were about that in the book the book really helped me heal it was a therapeutic journey for me and so it i had an opportunity to process the experiences that i had encountered and i am really grateful that i got that time to sit with these experiences and verbalize it and have it be treated with empathy and understanding 
And it also sounds that, that your positive feeling about Shantibhavan hardly ever wavered, even though there were the conflicts and the anguish and the worries, I think, about your parents and about your sister and uh, the conflicts with staff and, and the, the sometimes difficulties with the other children, that throughout everything, it seems that you recognized overall that Shantibhavan was your salvation, if I can use that word. Yes. Yes, it saved me. It saved me from a life of endless hardship and suffering. It gave me this community there. The community at Shantibhavan grew into my family. And I would turn to this family in the darkest of moments. And I felt in the documentary too, I spoke about how every time I wanted to move forward, the family back in, at home, back in the village would draw me back would pull me backwards so every decision that the staff took at Shantibhavan was directed towards how I could grow professionally and personally there was so much investment in me in terms of the love and affection not to uh, forget the financial investment too and there was nothing being asked of me other than to focus on my studies and aspire for a future it was a selfless love that I received at the school. As a child, of course, uh, before I could process all of this, I resented that I had gotten these opportunities and why was I being pressured to study? Maybe I just wanted to play in the village. But as I got older, I recognized that this was a life-changing opportunity that had just been placed into my lap. Almost like a miracle. Yes. Nothing short of a miracle. And I had done nothing to earn it. And that was my one of my biggest uh, questions that I, the guilt that came with having had the, these doors opened for me and having all these opportunities brought my way and I had done nothing on my own of you know of my own making to receive them yeah you were just selected i mean i guess there was a lot of luck involved because there are probably millions more uh, children that that are, could deserve to have this chance yeah i kept asking the question why me why was it me and the staff would say, why shouldn't it be you? Ask, reframe that question. Why shouldn't you deserve a chance to have a good life? So I have a, a story that's maybe applicable here. There was a little girl at a beach and she noticed that there were jellyfish on the, on the uh, sand, that they were going to die you know, from dehydration. So she started throwing them back into the ocean. And someone came by and says, why are you doing this? Don't you realize that there are thousands, if not millions of jellyfish all along the shore? You're just going to be able to save a few of them. What, what does it matter? And she said, it matters to this one, the one that I'm throwing back. Such a sweet story. This story also goes, uh, it ties into the individual attention and care that we received at Shantibhavan. Dr. George could have taken... 50 kids at a time or 100 kids at a time and had a 
larger impact but he he chose to have smaller groups of children and really give each one the care as parents would do so the, the conflict between your family and the school really came to a head when your grandmother wanted to marry you to um to your uncle to your mother's brother which to modern sensibility sounds like incest but in fact incest it's not incest incest is a universal concept but the details are not universal and i know that in my own family going a few generations back in europe uh uncles did marry nieces uh in biblical law an uncle can marry his niece but an aunt cannot marry her nephew so it's all you know very well defined um i think by tradition abraham and sarah were half siblings half siblings could marry if it was different mothers but not if it's different uh, if it's the same mother so but i think in uh in modern india the the higher uh, socioeconomic groups have uh, made that a taboo and so that was really you know not the case for your family but the, but more importantly if if you had agreed to this marriage then you would be sucked right back into the village destiny which speaks to the title of the documentary daughters of destiny it could easily have been called daughters breaking their destiny <laughs> or overcoming their destiny uh, but the the idea that everyone is supposed to live a certain way and that it's preordained and who should nobody should question it which i'm sure is part of a, a way of maintaining an oppressive social order if you can get the people on the bottom to accept their lot then you have much less conflict to contend with from the as an upper class person not only did you resisted this match but you had total support from from shantibhav and to to resist and it sounds from the book that it came awfully close to happening i wasn't the only one there were other classmates too who had their families pressuring them to uh, enter into marriages with relatives cousins like cousins and we were even scared to tell our parents that we had come of age because the minute they heard that they'd already want to fix your marriage and we would be just 13 or 14 and so the school really came in as the mediator as the conflict resolver they would not let any parent get away with engaging their child in something that was so unhealthy and destructive to their future the school became our protector against our own families well they became not only protector but they became legally it sounds like more your parents than your parents because i mean one would think and if this had happened in in the united states that the parents would just come and take their child i haven't read the legal contract that the that your parents signed with their thumbprints because they were illiterate um <laughs> but i i can't imagine it said that they were signing away their parental rights permanently i think dr george recognized that there was no way that the parents could really resist as depicted in the film too he would meet with all the parents it was like having both the two sets of parenting systems meet in at these occasions and he was trying to 
spread awareness he was trying to get the parents to buy into the idea idea that their child could enjoy a good life if you allowed them to complete their education at the school and you didn't come in the way of their progress by doing things like getting them married early on or getting them out of the school to join them at work so he saw the parents as placing hurdles in the child's progress at the school yeah i think that you're right he he's very much wants the parents to buy in and to understand and to support the the whole effort on the other hand i think when a crisis happened that was going to really undermine a child like in your case uh, then trying to marry you off he was willing to stand up and say no we won't even let her go home if you if you push this so that's uh really impressive yeah i i can see uh you know that it's really important to have a full understanding of the conflicts between the families and and the school and to recognize that it it was most of the time not a battle i mean there were some beautiful scenes in the in the film of dr george speaking to all the parents from the beginning getting them to to understand because the, many of the parents were scared they they thought that maybe the children were being taken away to have their organs harvested <laughs> and something really awful I, you know i think i'm i'm sure that they must have been at least partially convinced already that that wouldn't happen but there still was a lingering doubt about it and he was not only reassuring about on that score but also about what the reason for the school was and i think it took a while for the parents to recognize that someone could do this alt- altruistically that there was dr george was not trying to benefit himself other than you know having a life work <laughs> but you know he was really was a strong believer in helping children especially from such disadvantaged backgrounds so i'm wondering how your thoughts and feelings about your each of your parents have evolved over the years i imagine it wasn't the same throughout it must have been changing in different ways yes with new events it would affect our relationship i've sometimes felt closer to them and then withdrawn and it's never been a steady stable relationship with either of them and as they're getting older and so on my end my perspective and perception of them keeps changing and i wouldn't say i'm very close to them they like i still feel i feel deeply responsible for their well-being and with my professional success i would be taking care of them and trying to improve their lives so i see myself more in the caregiving role you you mentioned before about your father saying he was the golden goose uh, i i think he expected somehow that as soon as you graduated you'd be making money and sending it to him and it's been of course a much longer process you decided to go to graduate school yes and that's been his the heart of his disappointment and anger towards me and i have been able to help the family through the book revenues but he demands that i give everything to him which is something i would never budge to no amount of pressure from him is going to get me to comply with his 
demands and that's been really the biggest conflict between us right now and even in in terms of handling money i give only a certain amount to help with buying the necessities like ration i do not overindulge my parents in excess money because that money is going to be used by my father for drinking and so he resents that i control how much i give them so the the idea is to help them to be not comfortable necessarily but secu- more secure secure with their f- food for instance comfortable and secure yes Comf- comfortable and secure and but not engaging in excesses in excess because excess means wastage he is going to use that money to drink so just giving them enough to be comfortable and have even their medical needs taken care of so they have a better quality of life so i'm wondering if it would be okay if we talked about your sister uh kavya now kavya um she she died uh, your younger your younger sister who your mother was pregnant with when you first uh, entered the school so about 4 years younger and i think if i'm not mistaken she she died right around the time of your graduation or just before or after but it was really at the beginning of your writing process i think a year after i graduated were you still at chanti bhavan at that time no i was uh, in my undergrad program and i was living in a hostel for girls in the city oh, and and going to college yes in the first year of my undergrad program right which was uh, starting in journalism before it became psychology yeah it, i had psychology as well it was journalism advanced english and psychology that was the course because i'm not sure how to exactly ask this but what what's your understanding at this point you know years and years later 10 years later about your sister and and, and what happened i've come to strongly believe that she took her life and as i've gotten to understand my mother better i i do not think my mother would have played a role in her murder and i've asked my mother many times like tell me what happened how did she really die and she insists that it was a suicide and i've come to accept it she died through suicide and not by murder yeah and in the, in the book you write about her kind of rebelling against the family uh by hanging out with some un- unsavory men um probably uh gang gang involved uh you know really hoodlums actually and that the family was feeling very disgraced by it and was trying to stop her but it was she was very very rebellious and uh she wouldn't be uh she wouldn't listen to them she was she was hard to get along with because of her rebellious nature and and also i only have love and empathy for her because she was a victim she was a victim of the system and victim of poverty and 
a dysfunctional family. She needed more time, I think, to, to figure it all out, and she unfortunately didn't have that. She didn't have a support system the way I did. And as you describe it in your book, that uh, her her death, I think, is in, in, in addition to all the other things you just mentioned, it really contributed to your motivation to become a child psychologist. Yes, absolutely. It was an awakening for me, a turning point in my life, because I realized that children like her grow up having really no way out, even emotionally and psychologically, from the constant cycle, the vicious cycle of dysfunctionality that they're born into. They do not have role models. Their parents themselves are struggling with their own trauma, and it's a cycle of intergenerational trauma. I don't know if I mentioned this, but you you know you dedicate the book to her and uh, and also to Dr. George. You know one of, one of the difficulties that uh, with your sister's death is it brings up the whole issue about Shanti Bhavan taking only one child uh, per family, and 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 the reason they do that is because they're trying to spread out. I think the uh, the benefits to as many families as possible. I think hoping that taking an oldest child will have an influence on the younger children about taking education seriously and, and so on. But as you yourself saw in your own family, it can also lead to tremendous uh, envy by the younger child toward, toward the older one who, who got to go. You know, how families deal with that envy and jealousy, you know, is, uh, it depends on how adept the, uh, the parents are. It's a very hard decision for the school, and it's it's raised, it's caused a lot of conflict with our siblings, and uh, that was a big struggle for me throughout my childhood, and I uh, carried, shouldered the sense of guilt of for having been the lucky one to escape while my siblings were still trapped in the system, but that was the price for our education. And now, as we're much older and my classmates have gone on to take on, uh, take up careers and succeed, they have been able to give back to their families and improve their siblings' lives. They've been able to send their siblings to college, clear off generational debt, even pay for the huge cover, the huge wedding expenses. So today I can see that our brothers and sisters are happy and they're grateful that at least one amongst us in the family got a chance to have a better life. And you could see the wisdom in the, uh, in the policy. Yes. And the team really thought through the, all of this before undertaking a massive project like this and I only wish there were many more Shanti Bhavans so that hundreds and thousands of lives could be impacted. So in your own family, uh, did your brother take some inspiration from your pro uh, progress and has he taken an interest in school for instance? 
Yes, absolutely. No, my brother's married now. He's he has a child, and there's a second one on the way. And I've been involved in financially supporting the child, and also talking to his wife on things that we could do to ensure that she has a good life, starting right from childhood. Trying to tell my parents not to fight in her presence, though she's just one, but telling them to lower their voices when they're shouting at each other because I don't want her to be exposed to that kind of stress right from early on. So I've been able to be a voice of reason and guidance, and I see that it's being valued. So you've really helped to influence the kind of value system of your own family, or at least of your generation. Yeah, which is, uh, you know, Dr. George and, and Ajit also talked about the uh, the cultural values of the school. They saw as being universal values of dignity and respect and humility and, uh, I mean, values that are really cross-cultural. And... I imagine also exists uh, in India among less impoverished people, although there are an awful lot of impoverished people in India, um, that, um, for instance, the gender relations, uh, I would imagine, at the uh, upper classes of India are not as nearly as sexist as the uh, as the lower, and as that's true in any, any country, I think. So I guess just to, um, to finish... Um, your your aspiration then is to become a, a child psychologist and to help children navigate their way through uh, through life through their uh, family and and their aspirations. Um, do you have an idea of what what age group? The child and adolescent population, even um, I'd say till eighteen. So anything below eighteen. Yes. So the whole span, I see. Okay, yeah. good. Well, I wish you tremendous uh, success in the future. You you have so many, so much wisdom through hard-earned wisdom uh, about life and about uh, getting through difficulties with one's emotions and with one's family and uh, the wider world. I mean, you have so much to to give, and I'm. Uh, I feel uh, I would feel envious of any child <laughs> who gets to work with you. <laughs> so anyway thank you so much for coming on to delving in thank you uh, Stuart. thank you for your time and thank you for giving me this platform to talk about my story today's guest was shilpa raj one of five girls featured in the four-part netflix documentary daughters of destiny about growing up from age four in a residential school called shanti bhavan in Tamil Nadu, India, near Bangalore. Founded by and originally fully funded by Indian-American businessman and philanthropist Abraham George, the school's mission is to help children and their families break out of the underclass. Shilpa was one of the first students at the school, which opened in 1997, the new home away from home for 300 children from rural villages or urban slums, from families earning less than $2 per day, nearly all from the group or caste called Dalit or Untouchable. In 2017, the same year as the release of Daughters of Destiny, Shilpa published a memoir, The Elephant Chaser's Daughter. She has gone on to earn a master's degree in psychology and is currently enrolled in a psychology doctoral program at Hofstra University, 
on Long Island, New York. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.